0: You may be seated. I'm going to slide this back a little bit. We uh, can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline, the why of Christ. We do have one other thing. We have someone joining the church, but... I forgot to bring the book of church order with the questions so I sent someone to get one so don't leave cuz we have good stuff coming but I got out of sync this morning somehow anyway I think we're mostly set we're at the end of John chapter 20 We've raced through the book of John, and uh, only two verses today, but probably two of the most important verses in the whole uh, book because they tell us why John wrote the book. And so it's sort of the purpose statement of the gospel of John. So let's read that John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us this gospel. That we might learn of Jesus, that we might understand the truth that he is and that he brought, and that we might believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and that we might have life because we believe in Jesus. We ask that you would make this true for each one of us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John doesn't tell us everything that Jesus did, but he tells us those acts that will lead to faith. John selects seven miracles in this book, if you remember, and uh, they're called sign miracles because they are significant. And uh, we'll just review those very quickly. Begin softly with a quiet miracle of water to wine and sort of crescendos to the public resurrection of Lazarus. Seven miracles are offered and seven witnesses are examined, each one building on the testimony of the previous. So let's see if we can feel the impact of these coming one after another. Sometimes you miss the flow because we go through in, in such short pieces. So we're going to take sort of a big-picture view uh, this morning. And I want you to pretend that you're in a courtroom, and it's a nearly empty courtroom. There's only four people present. There is a judge, and there is a lawyer, and there's an orphan, and then there's a would-be guardian for the orphan. And uh, the judge, of course, is God, and uh, Jesus is the one who seeks to be the guardian, and you are the orphan. You have no name, no inheritance, no home. And the lawyer is proposing that you be placed in Jesus' care. And who is the lawyer? A Galilean fisherman named John. And he has presented the court with six witnesses so far. And it's time for the seventh, but before calling the seventh witness to the stand, he reviews the case. He says, we started this case with a wedding in Cana. He paces as he speaks, measuring each word as lawyers wont to do. He so said, they had no wine, none at all. But when Jesus spoke, water became wine. The best wine, delicious wine. You heard the testimony of the wedding attendants. They saw it happen. He pauses for dramatic effect. And he moves on It says, then we heard... Uh, from the words of the foreign official, his son was nearly dead. You nod, you remember the man's testimony. Articulate, he had spoken of how he had called every doctor, tried every treatment. Nothing helped his son. And just when he was about to give up hope, someone told him about a healer in Galilee. And through his thick accent, the dignitary had explained, I um, had no other choice. I went to him out of desperation. Look, look what the teacher did for my son. And the boy had stood up, and you stared at him. Hard to believe such a healthy young man had ever been near death. And you listen intently as John continues. Your Honor, don't forget the crippled man near the pool. For 38 years, he hadn't walked. But then Jesus came, and well, the court saw him. Remember, we saw him walk into this room. We heard his story. And if that wasn't enough, we also heard the testimony of the boy with the lunch. It was part of a crowd of thousands who had followed Jesus in order to hear him teach and to see him heal. And just when the little boy was about to open his uh, lunch basket to eat, he was asked to bring it to Jesus. And one minute it held a lunch, and the next minute it held a feast. And John pauses again. He lets the silence of the courtroom sink in. No one can deny these testimonies. The judge listens. The lawyer listens. You, the orphans, say nothing. He goes on. Then there was a storm. Peter described it for us. The boat bouncing on the waves, thunder and lightning, and storms like that can kill. I know. I used to make my living on a boat. Peter's testimony about what happened was true. I was there. The master walked down the water, and the moment he stepped into the boat, we were safe. And John pauses again, sunlight squared by a window, comes in, makes a box on the floor. And John steps into the box and says, Then you met a man who had never seen light. His world was dark, black, he was blind, blind from birth. And then John dramatically states what the man born blind had said. Jesus healed my eyes. Six testimonies have been given. Six miracles have been verified. John gestures towards the evidence table where sit all the articles, a a water jug that held the wine, a uh, signed affidavit of the doctor who treated the sick son, The cot of the cripple, the basket of the boy, Peter had brought a broken oar to show the strength of the storm, and the blind man had left his cup and his cane. He didn't need them anymore. And now John says, turning to the judge, we have one last witness to call, one more piece of evidence to submit, and he goes to his table and returns with a white sheet. And You lean forward, you're not sure what He's holding, he says, this is a burial shroud. He places the cloth on the table and he says, the last witness is Lazarus of Bethany. And Lazarus comes forward and very succinctly states, I had been dead for four days. I was in the tomb. I was prayed for and buried. I was dead. But Jesus called me out of the grave. And John returns to the judge and says, You've heard the testimonies. I leave the decision in your hands. And with that, he returns to the table and takes a seat. And the guardian then stands. He doesn't identify himself. He doesn't need to. Everybody recognizes him. He is Jesus Christ. And his voice fills the courtroom. And he says, I represent an orphan who is the sum of all that you have seen like the party that had no wine this one has no cause for celebration like the dignitary son this child is spiritually ill like the cripple and the beggar he can't walk and he's blind he is starving and earth has no food to fill him he faces storms as severe as the one on galilee but earth has no compass to guide him and most of all he is dead just like Lazarus, dead, spiritually dead. And then he says, and I will do for him what I did for them. I'll give him joy, strength, healing, sight, safety, nourishment, new life. All are his. The witnesses have all told their stories. John has written them all down. And now in today's verses, he tells us why. He tells us why. So let's take a look at the text and see what he says. We start the verse 30 with a summary. A summary. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. you ever read a book and wondered why anyone bothered to write it? I've read a few books like that. I thought of a number of reasons why they might have been written. Sometimes people write because their job depends on it. Particularly uh, true of professors in some colleges and universities, they must publish or perish. If they don't publish, they'll perish, meaning they'll lose their jobs. Some people write because they think it's good for them to write. And other people write as an ego trip. They want to be known. And these reasons for writing uh, can be largely unworthy. Uh, but next to books that suggest answers like these, there are other books that are so clear in their point and so helpful in developing it that their worth is immediately apparent. Such are the classics. Such as the Bible. And so too is that part of the Bible, the Gospel of John, which we've been reading and studying for some, to it say, 76 weeks, a while. And we're getting near the end, only one chapter to go. We ought to be done by September. No, we'll be done early May. So why was the Gospel of John written? John's saying here, That there were many other things about which he could have written, but the things he did write were chosen carefully on the basis of a two-part goal. And that goal centers in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first part, the chief part, is that those learning about Jesus might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. The second part is a consequence of the first, that the one believing might have eternal life through Christ's name. And that's what sets John, and also the Bible as a whole, apart from most other books, many of which, not all, but many of which were written to glorify the writer. And John's not like this, and neither is the Bible as a whole. The inspired writers of the Scripture freely identify themselves for the most part. There's a few we're not totally sure about. But they lose themselves in their theme, and they never glorify either themselves or their achievements. On the contrary, if they speak of themselves at all, it's to tell of their own shameful failures that we might glorify God even more. There is no example more striking in this regard than the Apostle John. He's alert, he's sensitive, he's a member of a small band of disciples, he traveled with Jesus during his ministry, he's a member of what we might even call the inner circle, composed of Peter, James, and John. John must have known more about Jesus by way of actual fact and direct experience than anyone, and he outlived all of the other apostles. And yet he's so far from calling attention to himself or his knowledge of Christ that he doesn't even mention himself by name while writing this gospel. Remember we read about the disciple that Jesus loved. He doesn't say, that was me. For all time you get to read about me. Long before the rest of us figured out, John knew that it's not about me. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great preacher of the 19th century, points to the amazing reserve the Apostle John must have exercised in refusing to use personal details to embellish his gospel. Now his gospel is full of lots of details about what happens. But he doesn't put many details about himself or what he did. He omits, as if on purpose, uh, Spurgeon says, those places of the history in which he would have shown He and James and Peter, frequently selected by the Master to be with him when others were excluded. But of these occasions, he says nothing. To read about most of them, you have to go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The resurrection of the daughter of Jairus. Said of the disciples as well as of the relatives and the multitude, the crowd. says the Lord put them all out and only took the three uh, to be with him. It's a very singular honor. John doesn't say a word about the raising of the daughter of Jairus. Even more striking is the fact that the master, when he took with him the eleven to the garden, he left most of them at the gate, right at the end of the life, but he led the three into the garden. He had them wait just a, a stone's throw away. Some heard his prayers and they observed the bloody sweat. And John was one of them and he says nothing about it. He could have said, I was with him on the last night. Doesn't mention he leaves everything out which would have brought John into the front in order that he may fill up the whole uh, foreground of his canvas with a portrait of his Lord. Everything is subordinated to this one grand end so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Another reason books uh, are written is to satisfy curiosity. You know, there's so many tell-all books. And they generally sell well because people have great curiosity about other people. And over the years, there's been scores of books uh, by people who've worked for other famous people and then who pretend to let us in on their secrets. And people buy these books because they want to know the details about the lives of the people involved. But the Apostle John, even though he deals with the most famous person who ever lived, doesn't write in that fashion. We probably would have. I would have. Had I been writing about Jesus, I would have recorded a physical description. I would have uh, written how tall Jesus was, how much he weighed, the color of his eyes, the color of his hair. I would have tried to describe exactly what he looked like. I would have told of his childhood, his first friends, what people thought of him before he began his earthly ministry. Did the furniture Jesus build last? Was it a good value? (laughs) I would think so. But we don't know. We're not told. I would have told what finally happened to Nicodemus. Was he really, did he really become a believer or not? We kind of implied that he did, but we're not told. I would have said so. I would have had the reaction of the leaders of Israel to the news of Christ's resurrection. There's a whole lot of things I might have put in there. I didn't get asked. The Holy Spirit doesn't lead the gospel writers to do that. And as John indicates, he wrote only that which would lead us to faith in Christ, not that which would satisfy our curiosity. Because that's his purpose. Look at the first part of verse 31. We have a purpose. This is how John's concluding words should be taken. Really, chapter 21 is like an epilogue. This is really the conclusion of the book. It's as though he's saying, look, you've been reading and studying my gospel for some time now. You've come to the end. Do you understand why I wrote it? Have you grasped my purpose, or have you just missed it after all this time? And in case you missed it, let me spell it out for you. Jesus did many, many things, But I haven't recorded all of them. I've only recorded a part of them. But I have recorded that part so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. First part of verse 31. Now the word believe carries the force of believe decisively. John's purpose is to awaken faith in Jesus. If we affirm that evangelistic purpose, however, appears no reason why John shouldn't also have intended that Christian readers would be taught and encouraged to grow through what he wrote. And We thank God for the witness of John by which we've been entrusted through the Holy Spirit with this great gospel, means of which those in darkness can be brought into the glorious light of Jesus Christ. Those already walking in that light can have their journey of following Christ, significantly illuminated, have light shed on their path to enable them to walk more confidently and fruitfully. And the key theme of this closing section, in a a sense throughout the gospel, is faith. Specifically the nature of faith. And I think I think it's amazing. Mm. And I think it's amazing that we can have a first-hand engagement with Jesus, with the historical record that's possible for all of us. (coughs) Excuse me. And John's whole point in writing his gospel, is to provide a record of the signs Jesus performed, including the greatest miracle, the supreme sign of his death and resurrection, so that we may come to faith. Otherwise, it's just 20 chapters of really cool stories. If we took these last two verses off, It's still good. But John's telling us, I didn't write it just because, you know, I wanted to be a historian. I had a purpose in writing it. I had a purpose that you would believe and that you'd have life. And this passage witnesses to the glory of that faith. Last week, we noted Thomas's. He had a heartfelt confession at the end. Remember, he said, I'll never believe... I stick my hand in his side and see the, the nail marks in his hands. Got to see it. <clears throat> and I said, last week, At Thomas wasn't such a bad guy, don't beat him up too much because he's way much like us. But he had that great confession in verse 28, my Lord and my God. That's the glory of faith that mortal, sinning creatures like Thomas and me and you can glorify the living God by placing our trust in his eternal Son and can call him my Lord and my God. The two terms of that confession are uh, virtually equivalent. Lord carried definite overtones of deity for a first century Jew. And it's with this word that the Greek Old Testament commonly Render the holy name of the Creator. Therefore, uh, the New Testament scholar Raymond Brown, uh, says actually a Roman Catholic scholar, but probably one of the great New Testament scholars of our generation. He says that one may address Jesus in the same language in which Israel addressed Yahweh. And nothing more profound could be said about Jesus. It's not a mere coincidence that when John was writing this gospel, approximately 90 AD, we don't know exactly, but that ballpark, give or take 10 years, um, when he wrote this gospel, the place that he lived in was the center of emperor worship. It's more, more than likely that uh, his readers and John himself familiar with Uh, processions of people, of uh, devotees going through the streets of Ephesus, chanting, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is God. And over and against that paganism, Thomas articulates the cry, which arises in the heart of every true Christian, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God. Such is the glory of faith. And the challenge of ours today is to make that same fearless cry in the face of the many lords and the many gods of our generation. Caesar worship is not dead. We just don't use his name anymore. False deities are still chanted in our streets. The gods of state and nation, all other traditional religions, New Age, Satanism, and probably most of all, selfishness or self-worship in multiple forms and in the face of All these false claims, we exalt in our worship the one who alone is worthy. We just sang that. Lord, you are worthy. Our Lord, our God, Jesus Christ. And that confession is made in the midst of a world that denies Christ. In the light of Jesus' claim to be Lord and Savior, we dare assert that there is a special glory brought to the Lord when in mid Uh, amidst this broken culture, in the face of the assaults and contradictions of uh, this unbelieving world, we affirm in faith his utter trustworthiness and we rest our whole selves upon his grace. And when John's purpose is our purpose, then there's a certain result. Go to the second half of verse 31 and see the result. He finishes this part by saying, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is informing his readers about the bottom line of everything that he's written. John has one goal. He wants to demonstrate as clearly and as forcefully as he can that Jesus not only claimed to be Christ the son of God but by many miraculous signs he proved it and the last and greatest of these signs was his resurrection from the dead and the result of this believing is to have life in his name now john has used that over and over again we have read that this life belongs to the father john 5:26 and 6:57 we have read this life belongs to the son john 11:25 and john 14:6 we have read that this life is offered to men through Jesus words John 6:63 6, and John 10:10. 10, 10. We have read that this life is offered to men through Jesus death John 3:16 John 7:39. We have read this life is offered on the basis of faith John 3:16 524 and this verse. Over and over again John talks about you can have life. It comes from Jesus. And thus it is the very life of God himself is made available in the Son. It is in his name because it's in fellowship with him as he has made himself known to us. He has brought life. But that life isn't a gift that's separate from himself. You get life because you get Jesus. You don't get Jesus, you don't get life. You don't get to divide it up. I want the life, keep Jesus for yourself. Rather, it's life in Christ, who, like the Father, is life itself. And to live in his name is to live in his pattern of life. It means to love as he loved, to be obedient to God, to totally trust him, to interpret all the events of our own life in the light of his divine presence with us. And John expresses this same call at the beginning of his first letter, 1 John, which we're going to start studying in June. And there the Apostle John says, First John chapter 1, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And if John's purpose and the purpose of the Holy Spirit who inspired his writing is to lead men and women to faith in Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, shall that purpose fail where you are concerned? John says, I wrote this letter so that you might believe by believing that you might have life. Do you believe? You've undoubtedly, most people in this room, have known of Christ and his work for a while now. You may have hopefully uh, followed these messages on John for a long time now. And what a tragedy it would be to come to the end of this book and fail to enter into the eternal life through faith in Christ yourself. Don't let that happen. Believe on him. Believe now. And you can say, what does that mean? What must I do? And I'll make the answer as easy as I can. Of course, it's always dangerous when you make things simplistic, but I'm going to try. Calling it the ABCs of believing. First, you must accept the basic teachings of Jesus of Nazareth as fact. It should be easy. We believe they are fact. But the reason many doubt them is not because the facts are uncertain. They're Uh, as well attested as any facts of history, but because they haven't really investigated them. If you have difficulty at this point, begin to study the Gospels. Ask yourself if these teachings, if these narratives, if these stories ring true. Are they consistent with themselves and with what we know of human life? Are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John believable? Second B is to believe on Him personally. Accept Uh, what the Bible teaches about Jesus, and believe on him. It's more than merely believing the facts. It's believing them in relationship to yourself. It's believing that Jesus came to die for you, that he is the only way to God for you, that he is your Lord and Savior. And finally, C is commit yourself to him. At this point, he actually becomes your Savior and your God, as he did for Thomas. And will you do that? Don't put it off. People are always finding ways of putting off what they know they ought to do. And some would say, I'd like, I need more information. You have more than enough information right now. Some would say, I want to confirm these things with some personal, emotional experience. God doesn't save by experiences, He saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's where you need to go. That's why John wrote this book. He didn't write it so we would just learn more cool stuff about Jesus. He wrote it so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. Question for you: True Confessions right now. How many of you watch American Idol? Okay, a lot of hands are down here. I put my hand up, and I don't want people to see me. I started watching it last season, and I got hooked. I find it utterly fascinating, in good ways and bad ways. You know, as a pastor, I find American Idol interesting on just a number of levels. It's astounding to see how a simple idea can capture the attention of millions, how people respond to evaluation How many people can be so misled about what they actually sound like? (laughs) You know, I love it when Simon says, "Do you have friends? Did they tell you you could sing?" They're lying to you. You know, I like Simon because you know you get to Randy and you know as old dog and all. You know, and Paula, everything is fine, and then you get to the truth, and Simon's like, "That was a mess. You can't sing." You know, go sell cars, do something, live long, be happy, don't sing. (laughs) You know, but there's also, you know, ordinary people learning how to handle massive fame. And it's massive. Even the people that don't win. It's massive fame. They now have shows, uh, preview shows before the real show. So you can kind of watch, you know, Uh, what we think, what's going to happen on American Idol before American Idol even comes on. And like the movies, every show is a treasure trove of sermon illustrations. And I can appreciate how the contestants, some of the contestants, have used the platform to Gently bear witness to their faith in Christ. Last season, Melinda Doolittle was a great example, I thought, of that for her modesty, her joy, her humility. This past Thursday night, they had the results show. That's when somebody gets voted off. And I was stunned. At the beginning of the show, the eight remaining idol contestants came out, and they belted out the worship song, Shout to the Lord, written by Darlene Zeck of Hillsong Church in Australia. We've sang it here uh, many times. And as they sang it, the name of Jesus was clearly proclaimed. And Joanna and I were sitting there watching it. I thought I was having some sort of of out-of-body experience, you know. It's like, what's going on? Who chose this song? Do they even know what they're singing? Who made this decision? I mean, worship songs have hit the big time.